0: Well, welcome back everybody. You know, it's month seven. I know, month seven since that moment when we all realized the world was changing, shutting down, you know, the story constricting with the only end in sight so far out on the horizon that it's like this tiny ship you can barely make out. I do hope you're all doing well. I know it's hard. We've endured a lot of loss, some of it having nothing to do with COVID. And specifically, I'm kind of thinking about the passing of actor and producer Chadwick Boseman, the star of Black Panther. He died of cancer at age 43. You know, his legacy beyond his amazing performances. And and, okay, as a Cleveland Browns fan, I loved him in draft day. The legacy were his words off the screen where he always encouraged people to pursue their passion, live out your ultimate purposeful life. And this week's podcast guest, straight from Hollywood, it really embodies that. After producing big-name films from The Hangover to Old School and running Joker director Todd Phillips' movie company, one single experience on a random day encouraged him to leave the traditional Hollywood scene to pursue a different version of it, one that drives straight through the California prison system. I'd like to welcome producer Scott Budnick, founder of the Anti-Recivitism Coalition, to Everyone Talks to Liz. Scott, what a story.
1: I am so happy to be here. And knowing that you're a Cleveland Browns fan, yeah. uh, I want to tell you that I just started working with Baker Mayfield huh? because he chose, uh, we've been working on a, with, with Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma, Uh, and the parole board, because there is an innocent man on death row in Oklahoma, um, and many have rallied around his cause. His name's Julius Jones, justiceforjulius.com, and Baker Mayfield, and Oklahoma Sooner, um, has been an enormous support for Julius, and has Julius written across the back of his helmet.
0: I did not realize that. I have to look for that at the next game, which they will win, thank you very much, going to
1: the Super Bowl.
0: Hope springs. Great
1: great win versus the Cowboys last week. Oh my gosh. And and
0: how about that little trick play, little sneakle action? Easy. That was amazing. Okay, we digress. It's all about you, Scott, here this time around. Um, I do have to ask you, because you're coming to us from Los Angeles. The pandemic hit California squarely in the face.
1: How how's how's it going in
0: Los Angeles right now?
1: I think I think we're really in a good place our cases have been going down um there's talk about reopening next week fully um we have outdoor dining people are getting outside people are on the beaches people are hiking um people are doing it safely um and i feel really comfortable i feel like we're kind of back to some degree of normalcy not maybe halfway there uh to normal but um it's feeling good we obviously are having our wildfires which seem to happen uh, every year this year. And um, a lot of our incarcerated and formerly incarcerated firefighters are out fighting those fires. Um, One of our crews has been out for 53 days, um, fighting that fire and so, um, but it's great. We just got to drive up the coast and see the ocean and the mountains and just remember why I love this place so much.
0: Yeah, we have to be grateful. We really do And, and to just seize onto the things that really can keep us grounded if that's even possible. You know, I I wanna get to the fact that you are actually an accidental movie producer. Years ago, I understand you were pre-med and you had an epiphany. (laughs) What happened?
1: (laughs) I mean, I uh, went on a film set uh, as an extra in a TNT miniseries called Andersonville where I was playing a Civil War soldier and uh, I just sat and watched John Frankenheimer, the legendary director, like on a crane shooting inside the Civil War prison camp and it was just a mind blowing experience. And I, when I watched hundreds and hundreds of people on that crew, I just thought all night and the next day and I'm like, what am I doing pre-med? Like I have, I'm creative, I have ADD, I probably could not sit in med school for a decade. Um, I like using my creativity, movies really, affected me and kind of changed my heart uh, when I was young. And to now see all of these jobs, I knew that was a business I wanted to go in. So I went to my dad, the doctor, and said, I am no longer uh, pre-med. I'm now going to be a business major and film minor. And he said, thank God, uh, never thought you could make it through med school. So I'm glad you're telling me this now. (laughs)
0: Ladies and gentlemen, my father, you know, that's so funny, My, my dad was a doctor as well. And uh, none of us became doctors, but he said, forget it. Go be, go be a journalist. It's fine. Love it. Well, so you were, in know, guess a movie and in, in a bit part there. And did you do other acting jobs before you no. had the opportunity to produce?
1: No, this, that, that was it. I, I had, I played a small role in a movie I worked on uh, called old school. I was the DJ. Uh, at the house party where Will Ferrell's character met Snoop. Um, <laughs> but uh, other than that, no. And um, ended up com- coming out to LA and meeting Todd Phillips on his first movie uh, called Road Trip and started working with him there. And then we did Old School together and Starsky and Hutch and the Hangover films and Due Date and War Dogs. And it was a great run. We, we were together for 16 years. I uh, was producing his films and running his company.
0: What entices you about producing films? People who are listening, some do understand the role of a producer, some do not. You know, arguably, when you, you get a just a one-liner, it's, oh, they help raise the money to make the film. But it's more than that.
1: Um, I mean, I think what I love, I think two things. One, I think stories have the ability to change people. Um. I made comedies for so long and although it wasn't like life-changing work, it was fun work because every day you're laughing but you're putting out fires. You're having to pivot in the moment and figure out things because you're about to shoot outside and it's raining or there's too much wind or whatever it may be. Um, And it really prepares you for life, right? Every day you're having to solve problems on the set right away and be a problem solver. And I think getting that just in your everyday life Uh, or in your philanthropy, or in how you raise your kids, or how you treat your wife, or how you're dealing with trauma. Um, It just helped me in all of those areas. Um, And I also felt like Hangover came out during a huge recession, where people were out of work, and people were losing their homes. And to be able to go into theaters and just see people laugh, there was something special about that.
0: Well, it's, it's a gift, actually, to make people laugh. I mean, yeah. many studies have shown that when you laugh, certain hormones are released and, and it just, it's actually really good for your health to laugh. So I get it. In a way you are, a Dr. Darling, you kind yeah, of took that okay, roundabout way. Yeah. Um, you know, where did you get the inspiration for the films that you produced? Scripts are like a dime a dozen all over California. Everybody's trying to get their script seen or made or read. How do you read through the pages on and the words on the page and, and say this is going to be a hit?
1: Well, I mean, I think working for a director as talented as Todd Phillips back then, um, everything was coming our way. And he had a very specific brand of comedy that was very reality-based, like comedy that was so far out of the norm and reality was not his thing. And so I knew what to look for, right? I knew what made him laugh. I knew what he found funny. And it was always Mm -hmm. stuff that was very much grounded in reality. Um, But um, I I think also with a comedy, but like with any story, um, great characters, great premise, um, uh, great uh, dialogue, I think all important. Um, But even like when The Hangover came in, that was two writers coming into my office for a general meeting about no movie whatsoever. And before they left, I said, um, pitch me something that you guys love that you guys are thinking about doing. And they said, well, we have this uh, idea about a bachelor party in Vegas, but you don't see the bachelor party because they get so messed up and they lose the groom but they can't find the groom and it's like an investigation to find the groom because his wife's waiting at home and everyone's getting ready for the wedding. We got to get him back in time for the wedding. And I just thought that like, that was such a new and unique way to do just a simple concept like a bachelor party in Vegas, yeah. right? Where it was less of a bachelor party comedy and more of an investigation. In fact, you didn't see the hang- the bachelor party or the hangover um, until the photos in the credits in the end of the film. And so I think taking a unique approach uh, to a subject like that is 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 important.
0: Yes, it's like Jaws, where you have to wait an hour into the movie to see the shark. Sort I love of Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, two thousand three, you're living the high life. Here comes the epiphany. Walk us up to what happened. On was it a Saturday? A random Saturday, a Saturday when you yeah, found yeah. yourself at a juvenile detention hall.
1: Yeah, I um a friend of mine uh, invited me down to a juvenile prison, juvenile hall. Uh, to be a part of a creative writing class and I didn't know what to inspect but it sounded interesting Um, so I went down uh, to this juvenile hall in the San Fernando Valley and went into um, the high risk units with an extra layer of barbed wire around them because these were the worst of the worst and these are kids that committed violent crimes and I walked in and I sat at a table with kids that reminded me of kids I grew up with yeah they're They were black, they were Latino, they had tattoos, but they acted like kids. Um, And when we started the class, I looked at the kid to my left and I said, how are you doing? He was a little 15 year old kid, tiny little kid. I said, how are you doing? How was your week? And he said, it was a bad week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life in prison. And he was 15. And I said, what happened? And he said, I stood next to my friend that shot the victim in the butt. The victim was in and out of the hospital in a day, no serious injuries. And for standing next to the person with the gun, I got three life sentences. And I went around the table and just heard similar stories and just similar stories of just such pain and trauma. And it was clear that each one of these kids were victims before they decided to victimize anyone. They were victims before they decided to join a gang. Not to excuse their acts, but when you're a kid and you don't have parents at home or you're dealing with physical abuse or sexual abuse or you're witnessing domestic violence um, and you're not feeling that sense of love, then I can understand as a former child, but also as a human being, why you run out and look for that love in all the wrong places. Um, And it was clear that this was hurt people hurt people. And I said to those kids on that day, if you guys are willing to do make the changes that you need to make in your life and find that transformation, earn that redemption. I am willing to be alongside you the entire way. And I started teaching that class. And I taught that class every Saturday in 2004 and I still do today, although not now due to COVID. Mm-hmm. But um, it was just a game changer. And I became that producer that was making movies, but walking the tiers of Men's Central Jail in the morning or going to the juvenile hall and in fact, There was a kid in that first class named Adam that looked like he was 12. He was going to prison for a robbery for six years. And he said, handshaking, he's like, I want to redeem myself for my mom. When I get out, can I please call you? And will you help me find a job? I gave him my number. He called me, and we were in pre-production on our movie Due Date. And I said, come down, be early, 6 a.m. You have an internship, $12 an hour, let's go. Adam showed up at 3.30 in the morning. He beat everybody to work, he out hustled everyone, he had an attitude of gratitude every day because this was not just handed to him, he had to work for it. And at the end of it, our prop master said, this kid's amazing, he's one of the best I've ever hired, I'm bringing him to our next movie, he's in the union and he's now getting paid $48 an hour. Come on. And he was the first of dozens if not hundreds that are now in the uh, motion picture and TV unions, working on film and television commercials, music videos, who came out of jails, prisons, and juvenile halls.
0: But it is a quantum leap, Scott, to go from visiting a juvenile hall as a guest of someone and saying, okay, I'm, I'm gonna give the time and I'm going to teach, to then putting on hold your producing career to start the anti recidivism organization that you put together. What finally led you to make that very committed jump?
1: So I could not just sit back day after day and see this system suck people in and not give them the tools to um, succeed in life. Um, We have a juvenile prison system in California um, that costs, to to incarcerate one kid for one year, it costs $310,000. And everybody and the data shows what you need to do to help a young person get control of their life. And this system fails seven out of 10 times. 70% of the kids that get out, come right back incarcerated. And if I was the CEO of a business that spent $310,000 on a product that failed seven out of 10 times, I would be fired. But this is what we've done for a hundred years. And the economic toll, the human toll, the moral toll, when virtually all of these kids, that I worked with, I knew they had the capacity and the ability to change their lives, but just systems were not working. Whether they be government systems, whether they be private systems, were just not working. I knew there was something that we needed to do. And I also knew that I did not wanna live in a state, a county, a city, a country that would sentence a child to die in prison. And we are the only country in the world that would sentence a kid to life without parole. And so I knew that I could use my platform, I could use The Hangover to um, shine a light on the tremendous humanity, power um, of the young people that I worked with. And so I went to Todd Phillips after Hangover 3 and after seeing 12 Years a Slave, the film, and I said, I need to go do this full time. And that's, that, that's what happened.
0: You founded ARC and it's officially called the Anti-Recivitism Coalition. And for those of you who don't know, it is this nonprofit organization that works toward ending mass incarceration in California. Um, But I I need to know about the funding because as a business journalist, I'm always thinking, well, you don't just go from zero to 180. You need to get funding you got to tell me how you started doing that. What it was like on a shoestring, and then how you grew.
1: Yeah, it's 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 funny. I mean, as an executive director of a nonprofit, um, you spend eighty percent of your time raising money. Mm-hmm. And when we first started, uh, thanks to the graciousness of the California Endowment, uh, the California Wellness Foundation, and the Hilton Foundation, we were able to start. Uh, with our $800,000 budget, seven hundred eight dollars 800000 budget in year one. Uh, we had three employees. We worked basically out of an office that looked like a closet. Um, and we got started and ultimately grew to an $8 million and 70-person organization that exists today seven years later. But it wasn't easy. And what I realized is, sure, the hangover guy is kind of cool, Um and I can get doors open, mm-hmm. but I learned quickly that the key to whether it's passing bills in the legislature or it's raising money, the key was to learn how to shut up, to listen, and to lead with those who had experienced the system, who had been incarcerated, who had gotten out, who had gone to college and universities and the great jobs who were firefighters and EMTs and, construction workers, and are just raising their families and doing well to lead with their stories, right? Mm -hmm. And I learned quickly, there was no barrier to raising funds once people saw the real tangible outcome of this work. And there was no barrier to passing laws. We passed 26 bills in California. Almost all have been bipartisan because those who spent time in prisons, jails, and juvenile halls have been in the Capitol getting to know senators, assemblymen. In fact, probably the most conservative woman uh, in our legislature, Senator Shannon Grove of Bakersfield, um, who was a no vote on all of these criminal justice issues, got to know our members, went to church with our members, visited prisons with our members, and now is one of our greatest allies because she has a huge heart and she cares about human beings, and she believes in redemption, and she's deeply faith-based, and her faith moves her. And um, it's just been a great way to kind of bring together uh, allies just uh, on on all sides of this.
0: You know, in the movies, Scott, when an inmate's finally released They're handed their personal effects at a little window, and they they walk out with, with no path carved out for them. I mean, I'm thinking of Shawshank Redemption, when Morgan Fairchild's character is released after decades, and he ends up in some dingy motel where he sees a former inmate's initials carved into the wall, and you find out later that inmate had committed suicide. You know, it represented the hopelessness and the helplessness that some, I'm sure many inmates, feel after they re-enter the world. What do prisons offer, if anything, by way of job placement after someone served their sentence, or is it just an amputation? This was your life behind bars. Good luck, you're out.
1: So nothing in terms of placement. It is a bus ticket and $200 and have a nice life, check in with your parole officer tomorrow. there are really some really good programs that inside the prisons in California and around the country mm-hmm. that do great job training while in, prog- while in prison. Um, I'm involved in a great computer coding program inside prisons called The Last Mile, where uh, men and women are learning to be software engineers. And that's a program that also exists in Oklahoma. Last Mile is in a women's prison in Oklahoma, um, which is obviously politically very different than California. Um, but the, the rate of recidivism for folks that come out of the last mile, I think is under 3% compared to the 70% I told you in our juvenile system in California. Um, great programs around construction. Um, and uh, there's, right. we've also been able to be very involved in the starting of tons of college programs inside the system where I think we have upwards of 15,000 people in California prisons that are full-time college students. Wow. So obviously setting them up for huge success. I mean, if there's someone getting a college degree in prison, it cuts the recidivism in half. Of course. And that's huge.
0: We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Scott, I know it's hard because I've studied this that, college applications or job applications, many of them ask if you've ever been convicted of a felony. And I get it. I think employers and fellow employees and students and teachers have the right to know if they are standing next to maybe a formerly violent criminal. But on the other hand, when applicants check that box, it's like taking the shortcut to the application going into the circular file. You're going to get rejected. So how do you overcome that?
1: Well, first, when you go to other countries and you tell them um, that this happens to people when they get out of prison, they look at you like you're crazy and say, well, why would you do that? And we said, well, we businesses don't want someone that has, and they go, but wait a second. Um, in our country, they're Germans or they're, I mean, they're our countrymen. Like we want to make sure that they have a job when they come home. We want to make sure that we don't have to spend another million incarcerating them for on and off for the rest of their lives. So we make sure they have a job. There's no company that would not hire them because they were in prison. That's why people want to hire them. And it's really just a complete different way of thinking, right? And it is what needs to happen. When you look at companies like Starbucks that have committed to hiring young people that have been through this as baristas Just like I told you the story about Adam working on set, they're hungry. As long as you have the training and you have the support on the back end, um, you'll see this work out much better than your traditional employee. You'll see them work harder. You'll see them work longer. You will see how much that opportunity helps them and their family. And for an employer, it's so much more rewarding to see this job and the level of gratitude and see how this changes, not just the life of the person, but the life and trajectory of children, etc.
0: Well, what have you learned that actually works when it comes to successfully helping felons not just get a job, but rent an apartment?
1: I mean, really, I think the key to all of this is just humanizing, right? Sit down with your landlord, let them know your story, let them know the person you are today. And everything about this, That's why I don't believe this is a partisan issue. It's one of the only nonpartisan issues today because when you sit across from another human being, even if they've committed a crime, even if they were this person when they were young in their lives, when you see that transformation and that sincerity and that morality, I don't care where you come from. um, You end up a believer in this work. And so I think in all of these situations where we hit obstacles, the key is humanizing. The key is, Someone meeting someone as a human being, not as a former criminal or a gang member or drug dealer or whatever term you want to use. This is somebody that really did mess up or have a really hard time at the beginning of their lives, but have made enormous transformations. And that's just not the person they are anymore.
0: Now, when you talk about being transformed by people's stories and changed by people's stories, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian West uh, has become an advocate she reached out to you. Did she not? Tell us about that
1: experience. I mean, Kim is, has become a hero of mine and, and she reached out to me. I was in New York and got a text that basically said something along the lines of, hi, Scott, this is Kim Kardashian West. I don't know if you know who I am, but I'm really enthralled with your work and I want to get to know more. So can we find a time to get together? And I called her and her commitment seemed really sincere, but I wanted to test her. So I said, Hey, in three days, can you come down to this women's prison in Corona? It's about two hours from your house. It's going to be 120 degrees. Um, but I think these women would really love to see you. And I think you could learn a lot. And she's like, I want to learn from these women. I'll be there. I got to cancel a whole day of shoots, but I'll be there. She shows up to the, in the blazing heat uh, to the California institution for women uh, by herself with one security. And we go in and we sit at a table with 15 women doing life sentences in California. And Kim sits there and says, I'm not here to talk. I want to listen. I want to learn. I want to hear your stories. I want to help. And that has been her tone the entire time. There is nothing, um, once she does her research, there's nothing she won't do in terms of using her platform to help someone. When she believes someone is really innocent, I told you about your quarterback, Baker Mayfield, coming on board and supporting Julius Jones. But yes. Kim is the one that turned me on to Julius's case in Oklahoma. Really, and Kim has reached out to Governor Stitt and is just, she, Kim is tremendous. She went to law school. She's now a lawyer. She's taken the bar. Um, and there's zero ego. It is all empathy and, and intelligence. And I am just an enormous, enormous fan of Kim's.
0: That's an incredible story. And I have always been a believer in Kim Kardashian as a businesswoman. People try and dismiss her as being someone who's famous for doing nothing. I see the work ethic. I have met her. She's incredibly serious. Remember
1: what a lawyer her dad was too, right? Um, She learned so much from Robert Kardashian.
0: So they say you can leave Hollywood, but it never really leaves you. Ark is is humming along, it's growing, when a new constellation of stars aligned, luring you back in a way to where you started, but with a newfound purpose. You created one community, a film, television, and digital content co-financing company that harnesses the power of storytelling to do exactly what you've been talking about, inspire and encourage positive change. Um, Tell me the story that that you have first pushed through as one of these movies?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, I learned through ARC that it was the power of storytelling and the power of empathy, right? And telling human stories, having someone see someone as a full human being and not just their worst act that they committed at 15 years old. And I realized that in the film and television business, we have such a power to harm or to help. We have a power to move society and unite people under shared values, or we have the ability to divide people. And I knew that this would be a company that could unite people under values as Americans or even as a global community that we all believe in, right? There's so much that binds us together. Um, And I wanted to tell stories the deep, that, that were deeply empathetic, that were deeply um, about the human experience, um, to have people see different issues in a, in a new light. Um, and Just Mercy was a book that I read. Brian Stevenson was a hero of mine. We did panels together, he's a friend. And the ability to come aboard at Warner Brothers where we made The Hangover to co-finance with them um, a film around an issue I cared about so much around a hero that I've known for so long was just an incredible first experience.
0: Well, let's just clarify a few things here. Just Mercy, which stars Michael B. Jordan as an attorney who fights to prove the innocence of a death row inmate, uh, is just an incredibly true and amazing story. I have to say many versions of that type of story have been told. I'm thinking of True Crime or Life of David Gale, The Green Mile. Uh, What comes to mind is The Thin Blue Line, the Errol Morris, it's actually a documentary about Randall Adams, an innocent Ohio man who spent 12 years in prison for the murder of a Texas police officer when, in truth, evidence had been covered up and another man eventually confessed and went to prison for it. I bring that up because I was a reporter in Randall Adams' hometown of Columbus, Ohio, when Randall Adams was finally released. And it was unbelievably emotional and poignant to me. It was a huge deal. But you know, how did you make Just Mercy different? What was it about that particular story where you were able to put this on the screen and change viewers'
1: lives? I think first off, um, being able to tell it from the perspective of Brian Stevenson, where if you have not seen his TED Talk, it's just one of the most incredible things you'll ever watch. Was a different perspective. And you kind of had a um, relationship, a friendship uh, between Brian Stevenson, played by Michael B. Jordan, and Walter McMillan, played by Jamie Foxx. Um, so I think those perspectives were important. But I also think, and this is really kind of one of the tenets of One Community and what we're doing, is it's so tough with a documentary. Um, mm-hmm to get like marketing support and distribution support and to have people see it. Right. But when you have Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, um, you have movie stars, you have their faces on a poster, you have them in a trailer and you have Warner brothers marketing and spending tens of millions of dollars to market and distribute a movie around the world. Right. And that's the eyeballs that you need. You can't make impact if you just have a great movie, but you don't have the eyeballs. And so, Being able to work with major television networks, movie studios, independent financiers that have um, that marketing and distribution support, I think is key. And that's what was really different here. And uh, we had a team at Warner Brothers that was not only deeply committed to making the movie, but deeply committed to the issue. We had incredible actors who saw this, not just as a job, but as a movement and something that they really... Uh, had to get involved in. And that was Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx and Brie Larson. Same with our directors and producers. Everyone was aligned that this is much bigger than a movie, much bigger than just telling the story of an innocent man on death row Mm -hmm. um, and a movie that shows how the system does not work as well as, as many hoped. And luckily we had a movie and an incredible director that really, really worked from an empathy generation and an emotion generating way. And we were able to start um, a campaign um, to bring people uh, around and engage them in criminal justice issues and have them get their feet wet uh, in terms of having this discussion at their church or having this discussion in their book club or stepping in and being a mentor for the first time or learning more about the their prosecutor election or whatever it may be. Um, the ability to have someone watch a film be moved by the film and then move them to engagement afterwards was really special.
0: Well, you got some heavy hitter investors for one community. Michael and Jolene Rapino of Live Nation, Variety owner Dan Loeb, Bitcoin billionaire Mike Novogratz, he's been on the show a lot actually. Wes Edens, co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, Michael Rubin, he's a co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, so the money is there to support this, which means you are striking the right chord and that leads me to wonder whether it truly now is the belief of many americans that there are two separate justice systems in america the poor and the wealthy you know the wealthy can pay to get out quickly or they can post bail. uh you know, talk a little bit about that do you agree that there are two separate justice systems in this yeah country?
1: Ab- ab- absolutely i mean the truth of the matter is Um, when I tell the story of David getting 300 years to life at 15 years old, if that was my kid with my resources and my skin tone, Mm -hmm. they would be out on bail because I would pay their bail and they wouldn't be sitting for three years inside a juvenile prison facing these charges. They would be sleeping in their bed. Um, And secondly, they would have the best lawyer in Los Angeles and my son would get probation if he stood next to someone that shot the victim in the butt and the victim was in out of the hospital on the day. But because David didn't have my resources, um, David's going to prison for 300 years to life. Um, but in California, luckily we've been able to um, make some change. Uh, we were able to pass a bill called Senate bill 260, which said that juveniles are not the same as adults and that they would have a chance of parole at 15, 20, or 25 years. So I was able to go to prison and tell David um, that his 300-year-to-life sentence was reduced to to 25-to-life. And then once David made these changes and went to college and did all these things in prison, it caught the eye of uh, our governor. And I was able to go to David and say, congratulations, the governor just commuted your sentence. Oh, my God. And so David now goes to the parole board next month in November and will likely be home by Christmas. Um, But yes, we have a system that is not fair to those that uh, don't have privilege and money. Um, It definitely skews towards people um, that know people. Um, We are blessed uh, to be white and and to have resources. And it's really, really a tough system if you're poor whether you're a person of color, whether you're white, et cetera, um, you can't afford bail. You can't afford great counsel and you get what you pay for. And it's really it. When you see the system produce really horrible results because of that, when you see innocent people go to death row, uh, or, um, spent go serve life sentences. Um, it's unbelievably tragic when you know that it wouldn't happen, uh, to our child.
0: You know, you've got lots of projects ready. The California fires, you talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, but they've burned nearly 4 million acres of land Mm -hmm. so far in 2020. You know, seemingly unrelated to this discussion, but what many people don't know is that inmates are often sent out to help put out fires. You've got Margot Robbie attached to a, a fascinating related project here. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. It's so funny in my, in my philanthropic life, um, we worked with, uh, our governor, governor Brown and governor Newsom, uh, on starting a fire camp for folks that came out of incarceration in California. We have 3000 people fighting fires, men and women in California, getting paid a dollar an hour, risking their lives. Some of them die. Um, they save houses, community members come out with baking brownies and cookings for them, not knowing that they're inmates, uh, congratulating them for saving their houses. They become heroes. They feel great about themselves. They learn a career, they learn a skill. But when they get out, they couldn't be hired as Cal Fire firefighters because of the felony that's on their record. They couldn't get their EMT to become city and county firefighters. And we finally were able to work with our governors to build a fire camp or to staff a fire camp um, for folks when they come out of prison so they could become firefighters in California Um, but we're also able to pass a law this year that allows anyone that risks their life to fight fires incarcerated uh, uh, they now can expunge their records when they come home and become get those EMTs and become those city county state firefighters Um, and that's great and now we've been able to buy a New York Times magazine article and develop a film about a uh, incarcerated women firefighters in California that Margot Robbie is starring in and to be able again to use the marketing distribution power global release power of a major studio to tell the story of these incredible female heroes um that is what our company is meant to do
0: oh my god you're changing the course of people's lives for the better that to me puts you on the geologic time map we're on this planet for just a speck of time when you think of jurassic triassic current times the only way to really make your mark in that timeline is is to change the course of people's lives in a positive way and to me this is just an incredible story what i'm hearing from you though when you talk about jerry brown and governor newsom is that there is a, a cosmic crash between politics and the future for these former felons we're less than 30 days away from the election four years ago Florida, Iowa, Kentucky, Virginia, they all blocked people convicted of felonies from voting rights, from ever voting again, even after they had fully completed their sentences for prison, they completed parole, probation. Today, these states have allowed a handful of people who finished their sentences to vote. However, Florida passed legislation saying felons not only have to serve their time, but they have to fully pay off their fines and fees before they're given back their right to vote. And look, I saw 60 Minutes. The problem is a lot of times there's no record of what they owe. It's a disaster. How can you possibly tackle that issue with your free the vote campaign? And how does this disenfranchisement affect society?
1: Yeah, through um, through our, our campaign on Just Mercy, uh, if you're interested in joining, it's representjustice.org. Um, we've been able to support the free the vote campaign in Florida. Um, and... Desmond Mead and the team over there has been doing incredible work. They ran a ballot measure and ended up getting 60% plus of the voters in Florida uh, to reinstore the voting rights to 1.5 million people that had committed felonies and were barred from voting, being citizens in Florida. And the beauty was to get to 60%. This was not, you just did not need the liberals and the progressives and the believers, right? You needed to convert some non-believers. They had the Koch brothers on board supporting this initiative. Um, And it really is, we're doing this in California right now with Prop 17 to restore voting rights to people that have gotten out of prison. And um, we are having tremendous support from the left, the right, and the center um, on this. Again, this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue about humanity. This is an issue of saying to someone who may have committed a crime in their youth, but who have paid their price and have gotten home Um, and are in college and university, we see your transformation, we see your redemption, we want you to be part of the social fabric of this community. And we believe that you should have the right to vote like anyone else should. And it's just been beautiful seeing people from all different walks of life, all races, all creeds, all political affiliations coming together to believe in human beings.
0: All right, what's your next passion project? Before we go, what movies can we expect from you?
1: Um, we have a few that we're going to announce in the next few weeks that we can't quite announce yet. Um, but I'm really excited about a, um, a movie we're developing uh, called King Leopold's Ghost, a book that we bought that Ben Affleck is directing and Martin Scorsese and Harry Belafonte are producing. Mm. Um, nice. uh, about the, first, the world's first human rights crusade uh, in the Congo. Um, and should be getting the script soon and just super excited uh, on the project. And you'll be seeing a lot more both uh, on the film side and the television side coming from us shortly.
0: Can I be an intern or a D girl? This is amazing. (laughs) It's life changing.
1: We're going to bring you back to California.
0: I know my home state, my amazing home state. Scott, this has been for me, a life changing story and to be able to share it with my podcast listeners I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. And good luck with ARC, the Anti-Recivitism Coalition that you have founded. You're doing amazing work. And I so look forward to the Margot Robbie movie about the female firefighter who's a former founder. This is incredible. I'm so excited. Good luck.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Anytime. And we want to follow your progress. I hope you guys have squeezed from this. You shouldn't have to try very hard. It's just right in front of you that There but for the grace of God go I. We are all fortunate in many ways, but we have to think outside our problems in our world and get on that geologic time map and make a difference like Scott is. Thank you so very much for listening once again to Everyone Talks to Liz. We promise you every time incredible stories of people who are doing amazing things right here, in our backyards it's amazing thank you so much for listening and as always monday through friday 3 p.m eastern it's the claimant countdown come on watch the stock market watch your money the final hour of trade is crazy almost every day and that's what i'm here for little ringmaster there have a great day and we'll see you next time